You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. My guest, Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Ostland, is Chief of Social Media at the United States Army Reserve. I am uh, speaking with him at the 2009 PRSA International Conference, and it is my honor to have him at this table. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. Uh, So uh, you are charged with Webmaster and Chief of Social Media. What an awesome responsibility that must be. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you kind of have to pinch yourself a little bit, uh, both because, uh, you know, it sounds so big and and also a a little daunting. Um, In in that role, I'm responsible for the the public websites for the Army Reserve. Uh, We have a dot .mil um, website that is fully accessible to the public, developing any new web uh, initiatives and also all of the social media, both the strategy policy development, uh, content development, uh, quality control, uh, all runs through me. Uh, and until recently, I was a team of one uh, doing this across our entire enterprise, which uh, the Army Reserve is 210,000 soldiers uh, th- uh, throughout our system. And these are, in many, ca- these, many cases, these are young men and women for whom social media is a pervasive part of their lives. They use it to hook up with their friends and make social plans. Sure. And now you've got to teach them to balance its use against operational security, I would take. Operational security is, is paramount, of course. Uh, it's always the front uh, consideration you know, when we're talking about uh, soldiers communicating. Uh, simple things like uh, where they are, where they're going, uh, what they've done uh, most recently can be an operational security uh, violation, uh, especially when they're uh, deployed to someplace like Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, or Iraq. Uh, in, in addition, though, soldiers, um, they represent the organization, uh, whether they are on duty or off duty. Um, simple things like a soldier uh, gets in trouble and the news report within the first paragraph always says, a soldier did X, Y, and Z. Uh, had nothing to do with their, their uh, being on duty or off duty. So we, te- we have to teach our soldiers that, uh, that they're never off duty, really that when they're out uh, dealing with social media, when they're talking on their Facebook page uh, about what they do, about the fact that they're a soldier in the Army Reserve, that they've got a responsibility uh, to the organization to, uh, to act professionally, uh, to stay within the, the bounds of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. You know, you don't, uh, uh, you don't disparage the president uh, or members of Congress or our leadership. Those are violations of our code. Uh, and are punishable. So it's, a, it's an education. It's a soft education. Uh, we're not trying to shut them down. We want to make them understand uh, their responsibilities. At the same time, uh, the, United, the U.S. Armed Forces is fighting for the idea of liberty and justice. Absolutely. The fact that everyone can speak their mind. Right. That's one of the beautiful things about our country. You Certainly. can be for or against something. You come in, you speak your mind, and we protect that. Right. Now, if I'm a service member... Do I sacrifice that right? You sacrifice a little bit of that right. Uh, You certainly, uh, when you're in uniform, as I am today, uh, it is against the Uniform Code of Military Justice for me to to talk about politics. 
uh, to talk about uh, policy uh, in such a way that I am disparaging to uh, our leadership. Uh, so I have given up some of those rights uh, for free speech. Now, when I'm out of my uniform uh, and have nothing, uh, no affiliation with the, uh, the armed forces, talking to friends uh, or, uh, or, or at a, uh, even a political rally, as long as I am not associating myself with the military, I have opinions and I am, have every right as any other American citizen to voice those opinions. The, the problem comes when uh, soldiers are on social media, let's just say uh, on, on a blog, where uh, they're talking about politics uh, and they are very clear on their blog that they're a soldier. To somebody who's reading that blog, uh, you, can, uh, you can honestly see that it's possible that somebody would affiliate this person's comments as, as something official. Uh, this is a soldier now uh, who is talking about, uh, about politics. So those are the things that we, uh, we work with our soldiers on. Pre- previous to the Internet, really the only game in town for broadcast communications was the mainstream media. If you could get them to carry your story, you got it to a lot of people. Right. But now, there's the prospect that you could have a Twitter feed or a, a Facebook account and go directly to your audience that way. Which, you know, frustrates the idea of a command and control environment. So, how does an organization, how does the ultimate command and control organization, the United States Army, deal with decentralized communications? Yeah, that's a big struggle, uh, and I don't think we have uh, figured that out yet. I, I, I think uh, I may be retired and somebody may be in my place before we figure that out, uh, especially before we figure out perfect practices uh, in doing that. But uh, we recognize as an organization that uh, that our soldiers, uh, unlike an active duty soldier, uh, our, our soldiers are only with us two days out of the month, a couple weeks out of the year, except when they're deployed. So these are these are people who are back in the in uh, back home. They've got a job other than the one that we pay them to do. Uh, so we have to balance their civilian persona and their military persona at the same time. Uh, we do a lot of, um, uh, of training with our soldiers on uh, dealing with, uh, w- with the media traditionally uh, and untraditional as social media uh, and bloggers in telling their story. Uh, and what we focus them on is telling their personal story. So if you're a soldier in one of our units, uh, we don't really want you talking about the Army Reserve in, in some sort of global, cold sort of way. We want you to talk about your experiences. So if you're in an engineer unit and you've been to South America and you helped dig wells for, for villages that, uh, that didn't ever have potable water before, we want you to talk about that in your experiences. So it's a very personal thing. A, they were there. Uh, B, it was their responsibility, so, that, so they're not speaking for somebody else. They're not speaking for the organization larger. So those are the things we focus on, and those are very safe things for our soldiers to be talking about um, without us as uh, sort of big brother uh, looking over their shoulder. Well, so that's a very interesting challenge because people go in and out of the reserves. They come into their private life, and then they're, they're activated. They're called in. Right. And so I guess they have to behave differently when they're called in, yet it may be, I would imagine, exceedingly difficult to get them to differentiate their use of technology when they're activated versus when they're deactivated. Right. So, I mean, if I, I guess if I'm, an, if I, if I'm a reservist... Uh, and I'm not active, do I have to uh, be, I mean, and and I want to have a Twitter account, what advice do you have for me? Well, one of the, uh, first of all, we advise uh, advise that they have those. Um, We're absolutely telling our soldiers to to get on Facebook, to get on Twitter, to to have a blog, uh, because they have great stories to tell. 
but part of the training and part of the policy uh, is to differentiate yourself between your military side and your civilian side. So, for instance, uh, if, if you're in a blog discussion um, uh, talking about uh, some policy uh, or some, uh, some event that happened and you say, well, I, I'm an officer in the Army Reserve, uh, and so I know more about this than you do. Uh, you, you're sort of speaking in some definitive language. Um, you have now s- crossed a boundary and, and are taking on a spokesman's role. Uh, so we counsel our soldiers to be very careful not to uh, cross those boundaries, to, to be uh, uh, very careful when they say, oh, well, I'm a sergeant or I'm a, I'm a captain in the Army Reserve, and, and because of that I know X, Y, and Z. Um, you can end up uh, having your audience, your followers, your fans uh, associate you as an official spokesman. Uh, so, so that's a that's a, a challenge um, that we recognize, and part of the policy and part of the training helps our soldiers uh, maneuver uh, around those challenges. Are there any standard disclaimers that yes. you give them that they're supposed to post? Yeah, we, we give them a, uh, a disclaimer that uh, uh, they can put onto their blog, onto their rules of engagement, you know, into their info uh, page on, uh, or a section of their uh, Facebook site that, that says, uh, you know, my opinions are mine, uh, n- not the Army Reserve. Although I am an Army Reserve officer or I'm an Army Reserve soldier, uh, I don't speak for the Army Reserve. Um, so those things help a little bit, uh, both in you know the fans recognizing that they're not a, an official spokesman, but also psychologically with our soldiers that you know they have to kind of acknowledge uh, uh, themselves as as an individual, not as a spokesman of the organization by you know putting those things up there. <sighs> Lieutenant Colonel, this week uh, we saw a very tragic event uh, at Fort Hood. Right. Without dealing with the inner workings from a, I guess, a policy or political standpoint, um, what lessons have you learned about dealing with the media during a crisis like this? Well, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, for, first of all, the events at Fort Hood were, were a kick in the gut to all of us, and, and it was a series of kicks uh, in the gut. You know, first of all, you know, it happened. Uh, second of all, it was one of our own soldiers uh, who did it. Uh, and, and then from the Army Reserve standpoint, we learned a little later on that five of the victims were Army Reserve soldiers and many of the wounded were Army Reserve soldiers. So it, it, it kind of came in a, in a series of kicks. Uh, terrible thing to go through um, uh, as, a, as an organization and certainly the families and, and fellow soldiers. Our hearts go out to them. Um, we, we, learned, uh, we, we learned a lot. Fortunately for us as an organization, we do crisis communications. It's, it's what we do. Uh, it's what we train for. Um, uh, it, it's what our public affairs officers have been through a lot uh, since 9-11. Uh, you know, anyone who has deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq has dealt with a crisis uh, as it happens, uh, whether it be an IED explosion or a sniper uh, incident. Uh, or some of the some of the incidents uh, not unlike Fort Hood, where uh, where things have happened uh, in places where you're supposed to be safe, uh, bombs inside a, uh, a a defac. The the bottom line is that our public affairs officers are trained to deal with these things very quickly. Uh, the the lessons out of uh, out of Fort Hood were um, were positive in nature. That the social media was certainly uh, very active in getting the word out. 
about what happened at uh, Fort Hood and our public affairs officers down there, although I'm not at Fort Hood and I don't know any of them personally from what I can see, reacted very quickly. Uh, were made themselves available very quickly, both through traditional media and through social media, in uh, in answering queries, uh, in making statements, in putting out what was known uh, almost as quickly as they knew it uh, and could put their arms around it. They admitted what they didn't know when they didn't know it uh, and, and went after it, just like you would do eight years ago before social media. Uh, all of the principles of crisis communications then are the principles of crisis communications now. You know, you, quick response put out what you've got find out what you don't have get it to the media get it to the public as soon as you can put a face on uh, on the incident get the senior leaders involved um, get the uh, the the care providers the chaplains the doctors uh, the uh, first responders get them involved in the media uh, response as well so that the public uh, especially that local public that that internal audience there at Fort Hood can rest assured that we're doing everything we can as quickly as we can uh, to, to a mitigate the situation but also find out what happened and why earlier this year I uh, interviewed a woman by the name of Laisha Palin and she's a researcher at Colorado University's Connective IT Lab. And she did a study with her graduate students on the use of social media on the day when 32 students were murdered at Virginia Tech. And she plotted on a timeline um, the discussion that occurred on Facebook. And this was really pre-Twitter explosion. So she looked primarily at Facebook. And then she plotted that on a timeline against the university's ability to distribute official communications on that day. Not as an attack of the university, but just as a study and with a full understanding that the university is obligated to notify next of kin before releasing an official statement. But what was so interesting about the study, which was published in the um, uh, Computer uh, Computer Social Science Review, and I'll have a link uh, to it in the show notes, is that, you know, with an issue of this severity, people understood uh, that, you know, misinformation could really hurt people and so what they did was they communicated amongst themselves on Facebook and they were able to predict not all in one place but in separate conversations uh, with 100% accuracy the names of 31 Hmm. of the 32 slain uh, students 90 minutes before VT could get the press release out. And so sort of the thesis of the study is uh, she calls it socially distributed problem solving. She says, you know, when the world tries to solve a problem together in real time on the Internet, no one organization is any match. And I wonder, have you seen similar types of developments yourself with the types of things you deal with? Well, I, I would. Um, we had a discussion with some colleagues here at uh, PRSA this morning about the Fort Hood uh, incident, and most of the names of the uh, deceased had been talked about in traditional media and in social media long before the Army confirmed. Um, and, and you're right. The reason for that is we have very robust rules on next of kin notification, uh, and especially these days, you know, if you have uh, have a soldier who who dies uh, or is killed in this case, uh, has divorced parents, that's two sets of notification. You have to notify both sets of parents. That that slows things down uh, as far as official notification. So um, uh, I, I would say probably 12 hours before. Uh, the official announcement was out. The names were known. 
um, out there. So that does happen. I think that's something that General Casey uh, will end. General Casey, the chief of staff of the Army, um, uh, who has been talking uh, about the Fort Hood incident, been very honest about uh, you know taking a look inside the organization and seeing what we could do better. This, this may be one of the things that he looks at, is how can we better get information out um, uh, and, and take advantage of, uh, uh, of the communication tools that we have to inform people uh, not just in the in the good times uh, when great things are happening, but in the bad times as well to to reach out to these families uh, and, uh, and and an interested public um, in a way that's open and honest. In the private sector, you know, we get nervous. I mean, we get nervous when we're going to present in front of important people. We get nervous when we're going to try to pitch business. We get nervous when we pick up the phone to to pitch a journalist. But, I mean, with a PAO who's working with uh, a battalion and has to inform the media on you know, deaths that could involve their friends, people they've known, people they've trained with, that they have a personal relationship with, how do you contain your emotion? Uh, many times you don't. Uh, and, and that's a human side of being a soldier. You know, we're, we're, we don't check our humanity at the door. Uh, we have emotions. Uh, we go through the same uh, series of emotions that anybody else would. Uh, it comes with training and, unfortunately, practice uh, in being able to choke back some of those emotions or knowing when you need to go off camera or in a separate room, break down for a minute or two, and come back when you're composed and get the job done. Uh, but we, we have those same emotions. You, you, you're not going to dehumanize. You know, a soldier isn't this... This uh, inhuman, um, uh, indestructible uh, being—we uh, have feelings, we have emotions—and and you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. We trained with these people. Um, th- these aren't just some—you know—we're not—we're uh, not a hired hand. Uh, this is our family, and we're part of that unit. Now you're not doing uh, so it for the something. money. And we're not certainly sure. not doing it for the money. Um, th- this is something that we chose to do, and and probably chose many times over to keep doing it. Because um, you know, as you know, you get past that first uh, commitment, you make a choice to stay. Uh, th- there's nothing in in our, uh, our organization that makes you stick around. I could I could decide to retire tomorrow. I, I choose to stay uh, and do what we do. What's the price? Uh, what's the price you pay personally for that? Um, well, you, well, you know what's interesting. There's another comment over lunch I had uh, today with somebody who was asking about you know the impact on the family uh, of deployments. I, I think our families suffer more than we do. Uh, when we deploy, I, I think the choice, uh, the, the sacrifice, uh, is um, is a quality of life with our with our wife and our kids on a regular basis and some stability. Um, now, uh, I've deployed to Iraq. I was away from my family for 15 months. Um, my daughter, my oldest one, uh, she still qu- uh, quivers and a tear comes to her eye. She sees me with a suitcase. Uh, you know, how long are you going to be gone? Where are you going? Why do you have to leave all the time? Those are the things that we, um, the, the burden that we bear uh, by, do, by doing this. And I have friends who have deployed multiple times to combat zones with very little time in between. Um, if you have a strong family, if you have a strong uh, family bond uh, with your spouse and, and your kids, you can get through that. Um, there are some upsides to being in uniform and, and being, uh, uh, you know, choosing this profession. Um, there is uh, certainly, uh, just from a, a selfish standpoint, uh, it's great to be in the military. I don't have to worry about being laid off tomorrow. Uh, and in this economy, that's, that's not something to dismiss casually. 
Um, I, I, I do something that I can be ultimately proud of, that my kids are extremely proud of, that their dad is in the military, um, that, that, that their dad had to go off because some bad people did something to our country. That, that's something that they, they look at with, with immense pride. Um, so, so those are the upsides uh, to being And, and I could see how they would. Um, but the truth is, in a lot of parts of the world, there's foreign policies that are very unpopular. And you are an American, you're a voter, you have your personal opinions on policy as well. I mean, I've got to think for you and for your service members, you know, the policy better be worth the sacrifice. Well, I I think we all take an oath um, that uh, we're we're going to serve this country. Uh, when, When the president whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, and Congress, whether it is run by Democrats or Republicans, calls us to duty, uh, that they and the executive branch, uh, the the Department of Defense, in our case, have done the homework and are asking us to do this for a reason. We may not always know the reason. We may not always agree with the reason. uh, But we took an oath to to serve and defend. Uh, There's a reason why those two words go together and not separately. Um, and when the country calls, when leadership uh, tells us to go somewhere, uh, we go and we do our job very well, and we leave the politics and the policy up to people of pay grades well above us. Um, I've, I've mentioned, uh, if you've listened to some of the past uh, episodes with other um, uh, service members from the United States Armed Forces, and we'll have links in the show notes, Yeah, you know I've mentioned this, but I wanted to um, uh, mention to you a speech that uh, is online uh, by the uh, Joint Chiefs Chairman Admiral Mike Mullins addressing uh, the American Legion earlier this year, and he's talking about the war in Afghanistan, and he says it's not a war against something, it's a war for something, the trust and confidence of the people who live there, who, if given an, a better option, would, won't choose to let their country fall to the grips of the Taliban. I'm paraphrasing, but something sure. like that. Um, so if, obviously, I know, you know, the, the U.S. Armed Forces don't decide when to strike. That's a decision made by civilians, and that's a decision made by the president. Right. Uh, but if you wind up in Afghanistan and you wind up with significant forces in Afghanistan and you were asked uh, by your CO, hey, how can we use social media to win trust and confidence in Afghanistan or in that region, what would be, what would be some of the ideas that would come to your head? Well, the, the, the very first thing that I would do is, is show this commander or this, this leader um, some of the things that we've already done back here in the United States, putting a face on our organization. Um, it, you know, part of a, uh, the, the Army Reserve, 210,000, very faceless, very cold organization. And through social media, we've been able to put a face on it. And the face we put on it is the, is, is the soldier at the lowest level doing really good stuff. So this, this sergeant, this lieutenant, this captain who are you know, doing the work we've asked them to do, and they're doing it well, and they're sacrificing, and they're doing good stuff. Uh, and they're having fun doing it, usually, uh, and, and showing the human and putting this face on it. We can do that in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, both for our own soldiers uh, and our uh, coalition partners, but also you know, with the Iraqi and the Afghani uh, people. Of course, in Afghanistan, you have a, a, a communication is a little tougher over there because of the infrastructure. You don't have a lot of people on the Internet. Uh, you, you know, you're not going to reach a lot of people on social media uh, outside of Kabul. Um, so and, you're, and you're I, still looking at like an, airf- an airplane pamphlet drop at this point? Uh, well, in some cases, yeah. Uh, in more cases, what you're really looking at is a soldier on the ground shaking hands. 
that's that's really where communication works in, in that organ in, uh, in in Afghanistan. In Iraq, however, there's a great deal of connectivity uh, in Iraq, and you could uh, you could use social media. Um, and what I would also recommend is that we not do it uh, when when Americans. Uh, or the coalition, but mostly the Americans are, are talking about how wonderful things are, how great the, the new Iraqi government is, how, how security is getting better, we feed into the hands of the insurgency. Who needs to be talking about this is the Iraqi government, the Iraqi military, the Iraqi police. So we need to be enabling them to be telling these stories, to be relating to the people, to be communicating on a one-on-one, on a one-on-many, on a many-on-many basis like social media can do. Um, that would be my second recommendation. Is let's, How would let's, you do that? So say, for example, training and the CEO says to you, go for it. Sounds like a great right. idea. Make it happen. What do you do now? Right. What, what I do is I pull in the Iraqi public affairs people. They're called media officers uh, within the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior who runs the police and, uh, and work with them, mentor them, train them, uh, enable them with the tools, uh, show them how we're doing it, uh, and then help them do it themselves. Um, it, it, it's part of a, uh, the difference between being a trainer and a mentor. You know, a trainer shows you how to do it. Uh, a, a, mentor, a mentor tells you uh, or, or helps you figure out how to do it yourself so that you can do it long term. That's what we need to be doing with these guys. Obviously, we've got a vibrant community um, of Arab descent here in the U.S., um, you know, vibrant uh, Persian community here. Um, and I've got, I probably would think Iraqi, probably everything. We're a melting pot here. So I wonder, I mean, what's the attitude of a um, someone living in Iraq, an Iraqi civilian, towards a an Iraqi that's moved to the U.S.? And is there a relationship there? Like, would you ever try to communicate to local uh, the local Arab community here as a way of sort of getting the information back over there yeah you know I wouldn't want to speculate on that too much um, but we do um, employ what are called bilingual bicultural advisors these are people who left Iraq uh, early uh, after Saddam came to power they've lived in Britain or Australia or the United States or Canada they speak English and Arabic um, They've lived in our countries for a long time and have dual citizenship, both in Iraq and in the country they came to. We hire these folks and bring them uh, to, uh, to Iraq so that they can provide us the cultural advice that, that we lack as, um, uh, as Americans there. Uh, they're very helpful uh, in breaking down the cultural barriers. They're obviously very helpful with the language barriers because they speak Arabic. Uh, they grew up speaking it. Um, and those people are a, a, a very valuable resource uh, both to us and the Iraqis um, in understanding each other uh, better. Uh, as far as using you know, the expat community, if you, you know, to put a term on it, uh, expat Iraqis uh, who are here in the United States to communicate back home, um, it, it's a lot more effective to communicate directly with the Iraqi people um, because the infrastructure is there for it. Uh, you don't have to talk to somebody in New York who's lived there for 10 years in order to get a message back uh, to uh, to Iraq, uh, wh- whether it's Baghdad or anywhere else. Um, the infrastructure is very good, even out into the small villages. Uh, the Iraqi people want to trust us. Uh, I, I, I was embedded with the Iraqis, um, uh, worked with a lot of, uh, uh, of what I term Iraqi patriots. I mean, there's no better term for them. These are people who who want to make Iraq a better place, who, who believe in democracy, uh, not necessarily our version of democracy, but, but, but a democratic principle uh, for government, uh, who put their lives on the line every day to come to work. Um, they risk their lives when they, 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 when they leave their house. They risk their lives trying to get back. If their neighbors found out they worked for the government, that you know, they're, they're in danger. Uh, and yet they do it every day. 
um, uh, these people believe in what they're trying to build. Uh, and when those people give up, then I'm willing to give up. I'm not willing to give up until they are. When we see about these uh, bombs going off and, you know, tens if not hundreds of people dying, what's motivating the people to set off these bombs? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of motivations uh, for these people. First of all, they don't believe in democracy. They, they don't believe in, in people, uh, the people's rights. Um, th- these people want a totalitarian r- religious uh, dictate, um, caliphate uh, uh, over over all of the Middle East. Um, th- there's nothing. Uh, Why? What would they get from that? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, some of them are are, are just pure thugs. Uh, it, it's a mafia style. You know that, that there's uh, there's money and power. So they're paid. Uh, they're they're paid. They want power. They want personal power. Uh, they don't get personal power when there's a vibrant democratic uh, system in place. They get power when there's chaos, when people are afraid, uh, when, when, when people are willing to, to, to pay for protection. Uh, so, so there's a, a big element of that. There's also a big element of people who, who for many reasons, believe that, that uh, the, the dictates put down in the, in the Koran uh, ought to be how, um, how government is run. That, uh, that that there isn't a separation between church and state like we have here. Um, that uh, that the religious uh, leaders um, uh, are government, and uh, and and what they say uh, goes. Final question: um, What can those of us that are listening in the U.S. do uh, to support the troops and? to um, support a peaceful resolution to this conflict? Uh, you know, the first question is, is the easier one. Uh, a thank you to a soldier in an airport. A, a note sent over the Internet. Get on Facebook and go to the Army's Facebook page, the Marine Corps' Facebook page, the Army Reserve's Facebook page, all of them, and, and just say thank you. Uh, it means a lot uh, to us. Uh, you, there's letter-writing campaigns. You can send packages to soldiers. Uh, it, no gesture is too small uh, to say thank you to a soldier. It, it means a lot. And, and knowing that the public, even if you don't agree with the policy, uh, and there's a lot of people who don't agree with the policy uh, you know, over the last six, uh, eight years, uh, still believe in their military and still believe in, in saying, hey, you, know, you agreed to serve us, and, and uh, no matter whether you're, you're um, carrying out a policy we agree with or you're carrying out a policy we don't agree with, the fact that you're carrying out the policy that we asked you to carry out, you know, thank you for that. That means a lot. We feel it. You, you really do feel it uh, when, when you're serving forward. Uh, so that's number one. Um, you can get involved in uh, family support groups. So your local National Guard, your local Army Reserve, Air Force Reserve, your local active duty installation has family support groups who are there to help families uh, when a soldier is deployed. Uh, everything from just somebody to call and, and vent to, uh, to helping with uh, with needed services, whether it's uh, you know food bank or uh, y- you know the gutters are falling down. I don't know how to fix this kind of stuff that my husband or wife used to fix, and 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 those services are there. So volunteer for a family uh, readiness group; um, it'll go a long way. The uh, as far as uh, getting the policy or getting the you know war to a uh, you know positive resolution. Um, you know, the American people have a responsibility to to choose a government that they believe is going to um, uh, going to do the right thing. And so, the biggest thing that the American people can do is vote. 
Uh, and I don't care personally if you vote Democrat or Republican or Independent or something else. Vote your conscience. Uh, who, who is going to you know, carry out the policies uh, that, that, that better this country uh, and better the world? Um, put those people in office. That's the best thing you can do. When you, uh, I, I'm going to ask one more, just a follow-up sure. question. So when you're dealing with a lot of young people, right? Right. So do you – and you've been doing this for how long now? I've been in the uh, Army 23 years. So over the years, do you see young people becoming more or less engaged in the political process? Uh, I think they're more vocal about it. I don't think they're any more engaged or, or less engaged. I think they're more vocal about it now. Um, and there's more ways. Part of it is the social media you know, uh, uh, revolution. You, you've got the opportunity to speak uh, and to participate that you didn't have before. It, it's more visible. It's more vocal uh, and certainly more widespread. Um, I think our soldiers, though, are an incredibly smart um, very caring, very engaged group of people uh, who understand uh, the boundaries that when they uh, agreed to serve their country, that they put some of that aside. Uh, and when they put on the uniform and, and go serve, those, those political opinions, those, uh, those passions that they have for uh, the political process uh, are set aside uh, in most cases, and, and they do what they're supposed to do every day, day in and day out. And, and that's a wonderful thing about um, our democracy and our system. Lieutenant Colonel uh, Gerald Oswald, U.S. Army Reserve, let me thank you personally for your service. Thank you. And thank you for being here. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.